if the CEO of Bank of America comes to you today and he says, I want to buy and use your product, it will be three years from that date until you even have a pilot program. Three years. Now, when it comes to startup runways, three years is a long time. Silicon Valley, a place where passionate entrepreneurs and savvy investors have created more wealth and innovation than ever before seen on this planet. There's so much mythology surrounding this tiny yet influential place that it can be hard to tell fiction from fact. I'm George Soto and this is Startups Unedited. Hey everyone, this is George Soto and you're watching Startups Unedited, the documentary series where we get real and go super deep with some of the top players in the startup community. In this episode, we interview Matt Hubert, who's CEO at Bitmatica, to really find out what it's like to run one of the most innovative software development shops in Silicon Valley. Check it out. Matt Hubert, my good buddy, we've started companies together, we've cried, we've sang, <laughs> we've played guitar together. How are you? Thanks for doing this. Doing well. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. By the way, this place is fantastic. So we're at WeWork Transbay here in San Francisco. This is the best one. Uh, we like it. I don't think we're going to be leaving. Good. good. <laughs> well, I'm going to crash here. That's true. Yeah, I think they're going to have to, uh, to wheel us out of here if they want us to leave. Well, you don't mind if I do crash. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. We have a uh, pull-out couch. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we've been you know, conducting this documentary. We've been interviewing investors and founders and others in the startup ecosystem here in Silicon Valley in an effort to really kind of tell the real story yeah. and bring light to you know, what it's really like being here in the middle of you know, innovation and the mecca of innovation. And you're one of the individuals that I respect tremendously. Um, you are not only doing uh, product development and engineering uh, on behalf of so many great companies here, startups all the way up to larger corporations, but you're from the area, which is, you're like a real San Franciscan. Appreciate that. <laughs> Why don't you tell just folks a little bit about your professional background, how'd you get involved with startups and sure. entrepreneurship? And I know that started at a very young age for you. Yeah. Yeah, um, it started uh, selling my parents' paintings that I would make and selling my brother's toys back to him, um, you know, like all good siblings. Uh, yeah, I started, the first company I started was called Clavio. It was a two-factor authentication company uh, selling software security to banks. And uh, one of the things that I learned selling software is from some buddies in university, and we, uh, we started that with a professor there. We learned pretty quickly after we won a bunch of awards, got flown all around the world, big banking conferences. We had customers sign up, pay us money, never use the product. Um, you know, and we learned that selling to banks is hard. And that doesn't come to a surprise to many people, but when, you know, when you're young, just out of college, trying to make it happen, it seems so easy. Mm -hmm. And you realize it's not as easy as you think. And for the folks who don't know what two-factor authentication is, what does that actually mean in like... Yeah. Yeah. Same so, in terms. Yeah. So this was a few years ago before even two-factor authentication was a big thing in the United States. It was really popular in Europe. But uh, it's basically when you have your phone and you go to log into your bank account and you get an SMS on your phone and you type that code into your computer, it makes your account safe. So if anyone were to hack your password, you have a second uh, device that can protect your account from being hacked. So this is the technology that we use every day now, yeah. right, for the most part. Why? 
didn't people adopt it at that time? I think there are two, two reasons. The first is I think we were actually a little too early, to be honest. Um, if we had started a year later, uh, I think it would have been a lot uh, would have been a lot easier for us to get adoption because one of the biggest challenges that we faced it wasn't just uh, we have the best two-factor authentication solution but it was you should use two-factor authentication at all many people thought I don't even need this why would I spend money on this and it's not now today after target has been hacked and everyone's been hacked and and now people get it, they get the fact that they need this. And so it's not a question of, of do I need it, it's a question of who should I pay, who should I uh, purchase to install. So I think that was a big challenge uh, for us, number one. Number two is, uh, and I'll always remember an investor told us this when we were sitting down and he said, if the CEO of Bank of America comes to you today and he says, I want to buy and use your product, it will be three years from that date until you even have a pilot program. Three years. Now, when it comes to startup runways, three years is a long time, and that's not, we didn't have three years. Um, so our big mistake was selling to banks. We should have been selling to startups, to smaller companies, um, people who we could get traction and revenue early, and then focus on larger, more enterprise clients down the road. I think you actually bring light to something that many folks don't think about and it's being too early yeah right and yes it's visionary but what does it matter if you a don't have the runway as you mentioned or right. the, the ability to be in business for three to five years before anyone would actually ad adopt this technology right. right or b you don't have the um you know the adoption in the market yeah right and I think that's something that sometimes we don't actually think about. Yeah. You know, maybe you can uncover that a little bit and or unwrap that rather and you know how you see that just manifesting itself in the community in general. Yeah. I think you have to be really careful about what you're doing and what you're building and who's going to be use who's going to be using it and to make sure you are in the right place at the right time. Uh, I uh, knew actually the ex-CEO of Monster.com and I remember sitting in a room with him with a bunch of different people and he kept quizzing us on what is the secret to success, the secret to success. This guy had made billions of dollars and his response, like many people's, is timing. It's all about timing. And I think a really good example of that today is VR, which is it's almost there. So virtual reality. Virtual reality. It's almost there and when you're Facebook, when you have the resources and runway of Facebook, you can take something that's nascent and you can make a mainstream. If you're a startup right now, and, and I've mentored other actually VR startups that are trying to get into the VR space, it's, it's hard. I would wait a little bit because most people don't have VR headsets in their homes. They will and I think VR down the road will become the next big, I mean movie theaters are going to go away. Um, you know, TVs are going to go away eventually, I think, in our lifetimes. They're going to be replaced with VR. So I'm bullish on the concept, but it's, uh, it takes time. It takes some time. Yeah. So why do you see companies like Oculus get bought by Facebook, right? I mean, when they get yeah. bought, like three years ago? Or yeah, something? it was a while and they had no product. They had nothing. They just had research and they had a bunch of very talented people. But I think when you're like, when you're Facebook and when you have the money that Facebook does, you can see a bunch of talented people with an idea that can be the next big thing in five plus years. And if you have the money to support that, then I think you can become the, the next the thought leader. 
uh, in that space. The same could be uh, said for self-driving cars, which are finally becoming very, very mainstream now, but they weren't two years ago. But Google had the money and the resources to be able to pioneer that. But as a small startup, that's not something, unless you are backed by very, very large investors with massive amounts of money, it's hard to make any, any traction and stay alive in that area. Well, I just so almost thought that, at least from my perspective, that Google was mapping out space yeah. with Google Maps and you know all that stuff, and then it was just a matter of time where they would actually be able to deploy something like mm. autonomous vehicles. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was the big thing. Uh, so the history of Google Maps and that whole thing is actually very interesting. Uh, originally, Google was uh, they, they compiled data, and they still do to some extent. Compiled data from all of the different map providers, so Teleatlas and Naptech and a bunch of different geo providers, and uh, they realized that being beholden to these third parties was actually going to be a serious issue for them um, because they're relying. A core product for them is going to rely on uh, third-party data and third-party licensing agreements. That is not it just. It's a very dangerous business model. So they, and they happen to have a lot of money at the time, which is always a very helpful uh, ace in your, in your pocket. Um, they decided to put a big fleet of cars on the road. And they said, we need our own map data. And not only do we need our own map data, we need the best freaking map data that anyone can get. And the best way to do that is to, to map it yourself and to put cars on the road and do it. And that map data is now what's powering the next generation of self-driving cars. And it, it, was, uh, it wasn't without that decision 10 years ago that they could even do this today. But that is what, I mean, the same decision came out of Amazon with cloud computing. Most people give Amazon credit for making cloud computing a thing. And the way that happened was Jeff Bezos at an all hands meeting said to all of his employees, starting today, every single Amazon service or every single Amazon component needs to be a service and everything needs to be uh, interoperable via API calls, which is sort of a technical jargon for uh, computers need to be able to talk together as little services and not one big thing. And people gave him a lot of crap for it, and it was a lot of work. But that became Amazon AWS, which became the cloud. Just from that one decision, that was maybe not 10 years ago, but quite a number of years ago. Well, tell us a little bit about your company, Bitmatica. You know, what is your, first of all, what do you guys do yeah. for everyone who doesn't know? And what's your engineering and product philosophy? Because I know that's one of the things that made you, makes you guys so successful and work with some very, very incredible companies out there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're Bitmatica. We are a design and dev consultancy uh, dev shop. We sit down with entrepreneurs, anyone from entrepreneurs to massive Fortune 500 uh, corporations, and we build products for them, uh, web and mobile products. So people come to us with an idea. It's, I want to build the next Facebook, or I want to build an internal application to help my business run more effectively, whatever it is. They come to us with those ideas, and, and we're a team of product design and engineering that takes that idea and makes it a reality. So that's kind of what we do, and we've worked with uh, companies all around the world uh, building things from 3D printing to pharmacogenomics to social apps, pretty much everything in between. So it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun um, building products. It's kind of we're like a startup in a box in a way. You know, people come with the idea, and out comes the product. What and and I know there are you know quite a few organizations that have similar business Absolutely. models. Absolutely. But you guys have been able to become one of the top firms in Silicon Valley because of 
your philosophies. Tell us a little bit about how you actually do this. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we really tried to do is we try to uh, we try to be a partner in understanding what your business does, and we really put forward a massive effort to talk to your users, to talk to the business problems that you're trying to solve, and not just the engineering or design challenges. So when someone comes to us, we want them to say something like, "I." struggle with uh, a product that we worked on was, you know, I struggle managing my day-to-day -day leads as a salesperson. And how we solve that problem, we can solve it in a thousand ways. Uh, and other firms will uh, ask for a really detailed specification on how they want that problem solved. We just ask for the problem. Tell us, tell us what keeps you up at night. Tell us what, what drives you crazy. If you're, you're building a new product, tell us why you're building this new product. And, and what you're trying to solve and who's going to use that. And we will sit down, we will talk to your users. We have a very, very thorough design and wireframing uh, iteration before we get into any code. So we want you to understand exactly what we're building, that users can understand what they're going to be using before we do anything. And it just results in more successful products down the road. People just are happier to use uh, products that are built with them in mind. Awesome. It sounds like you take some of the best practices that I think successful startups mm -hmm. use, which is the wireframing, so being able to map out uh, without design, but yeah. just literally lines and, and objects on a, you know, let's say a, a, yeah. a piece of paper it's, or... It's like drawing on a whiteboard. It's really just like drawing on a whiteboard on a screen, but it's, it's really important when, if someone comes to us with a problem, for them to understand what they're getting at the end of the day. Because when you go to a, when you buy a car, you can test drive the car, and you know what the car is gonna, gonna look like, and you know how it's gonna drive. When you're asking for a custom product that's never been built before, you kind of have no idea what you're getting. And you hope it's the right thing, and you hope it's gonna work, but when you're gonna invest hundreds of thousands to million dollars in something that's going to be your product, it needs to be what you want. And it needs to be what your customers want. And the way that you have to do that is you have to have very comprehensive design iterations and uh, wireframing sprints and things like that so everyone can get on the same page. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a startup founder here in Silicon Valley. I know there are you know, there are all these sort of misconceptions of what the reality is. We've been talking to founders and investors, you know, for a while now about this topic. And you see the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, you see the Steve Jobs of the world, but what does it really mean to launch a startup from zero? It's hard. It's very hard. And I think the first thing that if, if anyone who's not here and not doing it can take away from this is it is not glamorous. Everyone thinks it's glamorous with HBO, Silicon Valley. Well, that's kind of glamorous. Um, it's a there, good show. There was yeah. Bravo, Silicon Valley. That was something. Uh, and I have no comment. <laughs> probably best. And a, a lot of it in the magazines, right? The Forbes and, and, uh, and all the celebrities. I mean, geez, you have Aston Kutcher inve investing in, in startups here. And so we've taken what, when I was in high school here, you know, what was the nerds and the nerds who got no attention, everyone kind of looked the other way. And now we're kind of rock stars and movie stars. And to be honest, I don't like that. And I, and I think it does us a disservice because it's not glamorous. Working hard is not glamorous. Uh, when you, I mean, having to fire people because you can't make payroll, there's nothing more unglamorous about that. You know, that sucks. And, and it's, it's just as hard as it, is, uh, as it is long, and it's something that if you want to be an entrepreneur, 
um, you have to want it and you have to want the good things. Uh, the reason I do what I do, and uh, I'm be real, I could probably make a hell of a lot more money working for Facebook or Google or something like that, but I do it for the highs and I also do it for the lows. And one of the things that you learn is when you're the captain of your own ship, when everything is successful and when everything's going really, really well, you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can say, I did this with my team, of course, but we did this together. And when the ship is sinking, you unfortunately have to face yourself in the mirror again and say, we're sinking because I made it sink. And you have to take responsibility for that. And if that's okay, if that equals a sort of a net positive in the end, as it does for me, and it kind of gives you the freedom to explore your own ideas, then, then that's great. And I think then, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur is a good fit. But you've got to love that because it's a, it's a long, rough road. That really resonates with me just because, you know, I personally, you know, you yeah. have known each other for a long time. I personally have been chasing these startup, you know, dreams, to be wanting to become the Cuban version of Steve Jobs, <laughs> uh, Cuban Filipino, I should say, so my mom doesn't uh, get mad at me, you know, but I realize that this journey is so unpredictable yeah. that you really have to figure out a way at some point, accept yeah. what it is and that it is this journey with tremendous highs and tremendous lows but also be able to be happy on a, on a consistent basis as you go through this very risky experience. Yep, absolutely. It's like a road trip. You know, you can't be in it for the destination. You have to be in it for the journey. Um, if your destination is to, if you see Steve Jobs and you see Mark Zuckerberg and all these people making lots of money, if that's really, really what you want is you just want to be rich, just be an investment banker. You know, or, or, or work at Google. And frankly, you're probably, you're, in terms of your expected value, the money you'll make, you will make far more there than you will starting your own company. You will probably end up broke and sad starting your own company. Most <laughs> people do. I did. And, Me too. You know, and, uh, but, but you pick yourself up and you do it again until you're successful. And I'm really happy with what I'm doing now. But because of the journey. And because of what we're currently doing, it's not because of something that might happen in 10 years, five years, two years. It's because of the team we have now and the things that we're doing today. So life's short and you got to enjoy living it. And if you don't, um, then it's time to think about doing something else. Amen. You having had an opportunity to work with large companies, I know that, I don't know if you could disclose it, but we'll just say large companies yeah. all the way down to small startups uh, and even starting several companies of your own software product companies, what are some of the main differences that you've been able to sort of identify between these very large organizations, some of which that have these innovation teams sure. and innovation labs that can't seem to, to be as agile and, and move as quickly as startups uh, versus you know those folks versus the startup entrepreneur? What are some of the differences you've been able to see? Yeah, um, it's funny. I'm actually in, in a few weeks, I'm going to give a training on this very thing to an innovation company at a massive logistics company uh, in, in Europe. And they're struggling with a lot of the similar challenges. You know, they have an innovation group, they're trying to get stuff done and they just can't do it. And, and they're asking themselves, why? What do we need to do differently? Uh, the biggest difference, I think, between smaller companies and these larger enterprises is appetite for risk. When you're a small company and you have very little to lose, you're willing to take big risks. And big risks can sometimes lead to big rewards. Typically, they lead to failure. But those few rewards are massive. And just like starting a company itself, um, it's really enticing for, uh, for, for larger companies to want to take those risks. But they're beholden to their shareholders, they're beholden to their customers, and I think most importantly, they're beholden to their DNA. 
and that's the biggest issue is when you have a, a corporate climate that um, that really try, tries to mitigate risk, tries to shield themselves from, in fact, funny enough, there's a, uh, a company just in this very building that I was talking to uh, on Friday about uh, potentially building a product for them. They're a massive, massive company, uh, an insurance company, and they just spun out a smaller company to help uh, shield themselves from that risk, to be able to take risks and if everything goes wrong, if the whole thing fails, well, the larger company won't be uh, affected necessarily. So they by can just failures. shut that one down. Shut it down and don't tell anyone. Uh, and and that's, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But I think you have to want to do it. And you have to hire people uh, whose jobs aren't just about you know, trying to increase the bottom line by a little bit. You have to be willing to fail. And shareholders need to know that, and or whoever you are beholden to at a large company needs to be willing to fail. If you are not willing to fail at your large company, if you're not willing to try to put yourself out there, build a new product, add a new feature, whatever it is, enter a new market, and uh, if the opportunity for failure isn't there, then uh, you're, you're never gonna innovate. So what does that DNA look like? We've been talking to folks you know, the last few days about this as we've been filming, and you know, Tomas, we we like the, the the one of the the key components or key themes has been team. Yeah. You know, um, what does that DNA look like? Like, what does that team member look like that that's not gonna just bail when things get tough and go and get a big job? Or... Yeah. Well, um, first, you can't be comfortable. I think one of the big things that we see in a lot of our corporate clients and the reason we're hired in the first place. Uh, we're brought into a lot of these innovation labs. They're trying to ship products and they can't ship products. Like, why are they even hiring us? And it's because they have a lot of people there who are comfortable with their jobs. They're making a lot of money and they don't really have any incentive to, to, to innovate. And, and that's, that's okay. If, if that's what your company wants to do, that's okay. But if that's your job is to <laughs> literally you're at this innovation lab, like yeah. that's what it is. You kind of have to innovate. And so I think um, making sure incentives are aligned. So that, that's one of the things that startups like to push, right? When you're a small team and you give everyone equity and you say, These, if, if we make it big, you're going to make a lot of money. And if we don't, you're going to basically make nothing. There's a lot of pressure to innovate and there's a lot of pressure to take risks because what's the alternative the alternative is failure the alternative is zero so that's that's a big um, influence into the DNA and the types of people that you'll hire uh, into those types of startup situations if you're a large company and you're paying somebody 150 200k some chief innovation officer at your company and their modus operandi is to come up talk to people about innovation but really their feet are never to the fire to actually produce something interesting then they're never going to do it um, i think i think they need to be beholden a little bit to what they produce um, and let them fail i think it's important but not necessarily beholden to the success of what they produce, but beholden to the attempts. Because the attempts are what count. It's not necessarily the success. Because with enough attempts and enough learning, you will eventually come to something successful. If you were to give a startup founder who's at zero, yeah. let's say whether he or she is technical or, or non-technical, they're at zero, what two or three tips would you give them around how to at least successfully attempt to yeah. launch a startup? I think the first thing that you need to remember is it's hard. 
And if you're willing to take this road and the road is not a year and you're gonna make a lot of money, it's five or 10 years and you may make some money. Um, if you're in it for the money, quit now. Um, you need to be in it because, and I think Paul Graham has really been the, uh, the leader in a lot of these, it's, it's a problem that bothers you so much that you can't stop thinking about it. You, wanna f you don't wanna found a company because you wanna found a company. You wanna build a product because it solves an issue that has been driving you crazy and it's been driving you so crazy and no one's done anything about it. You need to do something about it. That is how you, that's the only reason you should be starting a company. Um, any other reason, and forget it, it's, it's not gonna work. Um, that's number one. And number two, if you, if you have that, and you ha if you have an idea that you really want to pursue, recognizing that uh, it only gets harder and no one is nearly as excited about your idea as you are. Your customers, your potential customers, don't care. And that's a lesson that we try to uh, teach people. It's pretty bleak, but nobody cares. And your job as a founder is to teach people to care. It's to be so enthusiastic about the thing that you're building. It can be, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be uh, you know, a social network for cactus. Uh, but if you're, gonna, if you're gonna sell that, you need to teach people why you know, cacti are the most important plants out there and why you should be using the social network right now. And if you can convince people to care, then you have something. But to quote Paul Graham again, you have to build something people want. If people don't want it, if they don't care, then you're, you're not gonna go anywhere. And Paul Graham being the founder of Y, Com y Combinator, y Combinator yeah. one of the most successful. The most, I mean, the they, most, right? they started the accelerator in a way. I mean, people pretty much look to them to, this is where it all kind of started. Um, and I read his articles when I was a kid and, and he inspired me to build people, build things people want. And I think we don't quite realize how many things people don't want. We think, oh yeah, it's gonna be a slam dunk. Who doesn't want to message their friends, you know, the next messaging app? But man, it's, it's so hard to build something that people truly, really, really, really want. And take your, take your vision and refine it to something that people are gonna get very excited about. And by the way, you don't need a product for that. You don't need to write a single line of code. You don't, all you need is a piece of paper, a pen, and a lot of late nights calling people and talking to customers. That's what you should be doing. And if you can get 100 people so excited about your product that they'll sign up the first day, then, then you have something. But I mean, there's nothing more powerful than going up to somebody and say, hey, let me show you this. And them saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. And that's painful. It's painful, yeah. but you gotta deal with it. Matt Hubert, thank you so much. If yeah. folks wanna follow you on Twitter, what's your handle and what's the best way to get in touch with it's you? A, it's Acclimat and uh, you can reach me at, uh, at bit, you can go to bitmatica.com or at teambitmatica and uh, contact me that way as well. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Great, thank you so much. It's really hard, right, to do this job of building a company. It is a lot of ups and a lot of downs, right? And you have to be able to ride that wave and come out the other side still ready to fight. Yeah. <laughs>